from our remote location on a movie stunt ranch in a canyon in the Santa Monica Mountains. This is Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. And I'm Eliza, your co-host. This is our show for Wednesday, June 14th, 2017. Tonight's topic is mathematics and thinking. Oh, this is going to be a fascinating subject. A lot of people don't really consider what goes on when they think about mathematics and how some people are so good at mathematics and others are horrible at it. What is the difference in the type of thinking that goes through our heads when we're thinking about mathematics or using traditional language? We'll get into the details here very shortly. I want to thank our listeners who have subscribed to our new YouTube channel, We've got a growing body of followers, and most of our shows are now available on YouTube. We're also on Stitcher and Spreaker and iTunes, so our venues are spreading. And also, be sure to send us your questions. Eliza, how do our listeners contact us? Send your questions or comments to admin, A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. If you go to the Talk Universe website under Contacts, you can reach us directly. That's right. We appreciate it if you put your name and your location in there with your question or your comment, and we'll use it on the show. We're looking for good material. Now, a lot of people just think of mathematics as a bunch of numbers you use to represent stuff. And nothing could be farther from the truth. In reality, mathematics is a language. We look at the universe, and everything in it is described mathematically. So... Why is it that we have separate languages we use for speaking and a separate language, mathematics, we use to represent things? There are a lot of questions about that. So when we think about numbers, what are we really doing? While math and numbers are related, they're not the same thing at all. Numbers represent a value or a quantity, while mathematics is all about the rules for manipulating numbers. Most people are unaware that our minds have a model of a number line built into our heads. We actually get a feel for number values by where we place them on that mental number line. Some people have a clear, solid model of the number line, and therefore how quantity and magnitude are related. But some people don't, and they can have a tough time relating to these ideas. We can see that even animals understand the concept of quantity to some extent. They don't have the same ability to imagine larger numbers as human beings do, But any predator can judge the level of success of an attack based on its perception of how many prey or enemies it might be facing. This is a clear indicator that even animals know when there is more or less. They don't name those concepts as we do, and this inability makes it difficult for them to do complex abstract thinking. Some people also have a similar issue. Some part of their brain is either not wired properly or lacks a means of interpreting the model, or simply has been damaged by a tumor or virus or even an accident. What it boils down to is this. Our minds depend strongly on models of the world. We have the ability to create a model of reality, which I often refer to as the world in your head. But everything that we see and do has to have some sort of corresponding model in your brain somewhere. Otherwise, you'd be severely disabled when trying to imagine or think about things. Suppose you could not form an image of the concept of number. Then you'd be unable to understand what numbers were. You could probably understand that there were things called numbers, and even that somehow they can affect your world and what happens in it, but you could not put the ideas together properly to understand what they're all about. Now think about this. 
You can learn rote rules to do a task, such as adding two numbers together or recognizing the look of an email address in a text message, but that doesn't mean that you truly understand what it is or what it can do. You know what an email address looks like, but do you know why? Or are you familiar with how the email system works? It's quite possible to use an email program and to recognize an email address without knowing anything about email protocols or the transfer of the data from one computer to another. In a similar vein, it can be possible to know the rules and perform basic maths operations without really understanding numbers themselves. Fortunately for us, our brains are capable of forming memories of nearly anything. As a result, we can learn that there are some intangible things called numbers, and they're still very real, just invisible and indestructible and capable of representing how many atoms are in the sun. It sounds sort of like magic, but memory and thinking can seem that way also. We're not very far from the primitive forebears that roamed the earth before mankind, and we're probably not very good at derivatives or square roots. Even our own ancestors had a tough time representing and using numbers just as recently as 4,000 years ago. But we have had a lot of practice at it, and we accept them easily enough. And why are some people very good at understanding and using numbers while others are just plain incapable? It's actually simple. Let's look at language first. We have a large vocabulary of words that label all the things we see and do and know about. Just about everything we know comes through our senses, and we see and hear the world around us and understand all these things that we can sense. Numbers, however, are not tangible or visible. They're an abstract property that can be observed only through abstract thinking. In some cases, there are people who simply do not have the same ability to understand abstraction or that ability has not been developed. They can surely see the world around them and sense it in other ways, but the ability to get a feeling, a gut feeling, for quantity is something that is not always present. We've all heard of savants, people who can perform amazing mental tricks such as memorizing a page from the phone book or calculating large numbers in their heads. There are examples of highly developed senses of abstraction as well as the rules needed to manipulate that sort of data. But it's also clear that the opposite case can occur. People who, for whatever reason, just don't have the facility to understand or appreciate numbers. Eliza, what is the meaning of innumeracy? Innumeracy is the inability to understand or work with numbers or mathematics. Now, there's an easy way of looking at this inability, and it's this. Most people don't know anything about, for instance, nuclear physics. Yet they speak English very well. Now, the subset of language dealing with nuclear physics or physics in general simply doesn't exist in their vocabulary. And in many cases, they're capable of learning it with constant exposure and becoming familiar with it. But off the cuff, they couldn't tell you a thing about it. And if you were listening to a bunch of people talking about physics and somebody who didn't have any experience were to step into the middle of the conversation, they would be lost. They wouldn't understand anything, although they could certainly try to figure some of it out. When you're talking to people about numbers, there's a similar thing going on in some cases. We know that everything in the universe that we understand is represented by words. Everything we learn, we hang a label on. This is called symbolic thinking, and a very special type of symbolic thinking occurs for language. But if you're not familiar with the connection between numbers, because they're invisible and intangible, and many people don't have much experience with them, if you're not familiar with that, and you try to apply it to the universe in general, you may run into trouble. Just as you can learn all about physics, however, you could learn all about numbers. But in some cases, it can be very difficult. 
We don't have much more in our heads than a few sets of engines that handle specific tasks for recognizing and labeling things. Really, our minds aren't as complicated as we're told. What emerges is complication through emergent properties, the actions of different sets of rules or parts of your brain that handle different representations, such as colors or shapes or words to describe things. Mathematics is a language, but it's a very special representative language that deals with things and properties that aren't immediately visible. Again, this is something intangible. We can look at a donut and we know what it is. We can look at an automobile and we know what it is. And words come to mind to us because of our experiences with these things. We learn from our senses what everything in the world is around us, but we can't sense numbers except as an abstraction. So one of the things that people run into is the difficulty of creating a representation in their mind. Without some sort of model or handle to put on things, it's extremely difficult to think about it. And I can give some examples of this. Suppose you had your computer break or some gadget break and somebody said, oh, I see the problem. It's the operating system. There's, a, there's an issue with that. What do you picture in your mind when you hear operating system? Most people haven't a clue. They know it has something to do with programming and something that should be in there, but it's completely invisible and intangible. You only know it by its effects. Numbers are very much the same. They're invisible and intangible, and we only know them by their effects. We can look at a thing and see that there's a quantity of those things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy to understand. Our brains have specific wiring, units, if you will, of processing that understand the concepts of numbers and how they're related. But in order for it to work, we have to understand what the boundaries between objects are. That's crucial for us to begin to understand what quantity represents. But if you don't learn how to sharpen or refine this sense, or if the portion of your brain that handles that sort of information isn't there or isn't properly developed, you'll not have a full appreciation for what numbers are all about. You might as well be talking about ghosts. Here's another rather paradoxical fact. The portion of your brain devoted to providing calculating ability and number handling ability is far, far more complicated than any pocket calculator. You see, in a calculator, the exact rules have been embodied in electronic circuitry and software. But your brain has an approximation of things, many millions and millions of neurons in place to handle the simple concept of calculating two numbers. And you had to learn the rules through hard repetition. You actually had to go through the steps to formulate the rules to do addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. This isn't the case for a mechanical device. Now, Eliza can perform a lot of mathematical functions, but it doesn't mean she truly understands what numbers are about. Oh, Eliza. Tell me what you need. What is the cube root of 106? I believe it is 4.73262. Now, that sounds pretty impressive, but Eliza doesn't actually understand what those numbers mean. She's simply using a mechanical process to get the answer. The issue is pretty simple. Nobody can pick a number up and put it in a bottle or hand it to you, so your experience of it can never be direct. You have to actually observe quantity as a byproduct of other properties. You can look in an egg carton and you can see how many eggs are in it. You can also see at a glance that the carton is or is not full, or whether it's empty. 
Your appreciation of the number of eggs depends on you recognizing a number of different properties or objects, the presence of an egg itself. You know one egg when you see it, and you've learned that more or less eggs can be present. Well, you have to understand the materials and the things in the real world first, and then you derive the property of quantity. You can never see it directly. So when we work with numbers, we're working with something that's rather slippery or ghostly to start with. After all, we can tell when we look at a car if it's painted blue or how many washcloths we're holding. We can tell something about its texture or its structure or what it's made of. But you never really see numbers. There has to be a module in your head that does the recognizing for you. That part of the circuitry or wiring in your brain is a distinct physical object. So the part of our brain that does the sensory interpretation is quite different from the part that understands numbers. And it's easy enough for us to understand what sensory data is, such as texture or color or smell or taste, even pressure, heat and cold. What it really comes down to is what numbers are. Now, many people think of numbers as those things you use to count by, an assignment of quantity. But we also see that numbers can be operators of a sort. When we think of numbers initially, we think there are so many of something. But a number can represent a quantity or a magnitude as well, or even a distance. This is part of what confused ancient man so much when it came to the thoughts of numbers. They often tried to give them the assignment of exact numbers of quantity, but they didn't understand that fractions of numbers or portions of numbers were just as valid. After all, if I have a piece of chalk and I break it in half, you then may say, well, now you have two pieces of chalk. But that doesn't mean we have more chalk. It simply means that there is a distinct division between how many and how much. In other words, they were confusing the two ideas. Quantity... I could read a listener question. Uh, thank you, Eliza, but I would say no. I believe that this is a no response. That's correct. But we do have a break coming up. Just a moment, please. But on that note, I will get back to the concept of quantity versus magnitude and how hard it was for people to understand fractions and zero for so many hundreds of years. Because without those ideas, technology as we know it probably wouldn't exist. Eliza, please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe with Sir Charles Schultz. Don't go away. We will be right back soon. That's right. We'll get right back to numbers and thinking and why it's so important and so hard for so many people to understand. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. Stick around. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Talk Universe will continue now. Let's get started. Thank you so much for that. Well... Some may remark on the difference in audio we have this week. It's because I'm using a remote system in order to do the show, because I'm traveling. So I'd like to point out that uh, we're starting a Patreon account so that we can have people sponsor individual episodes if they'd like. Actually, I'd like to expand Eliza's capabilities. I'm looking for a way to get a Kilicore processor so we can make her really smart and fast. And we've got a couple of initiatives going on. Go to the site, talkuniverse.org, and check things out, if you will. Another thing I'd really like to get would be a decent portable uh, mixer panel so I can do this audio more effectively in the field. 
So there are a few things we're trying to get so that we can improve the show and the quality and allow us to operate remotely so I can get out into the field and do interviews with people on site rather than having to do them by Skype or have them uh, come into the studio. Oh, Eliza, are you there? Yes, sir. I don't know where else I could be. Okay, great sense of humor. How do our listeners contact us? That is easy to do. Send your questions or comments to admin, A-D-M-I-N, at talkuniverse.org. You can also submit your material to talkuniverse6 at gmail.com. If you go to the Talk Universe website under Contacts, you can reach us directly. Yeah, please do that. Submit any of your questions and ideas right there on the site. And again, look at our Patreon account. We're uh, on Stitcher, Spreaker, iTunes, and YouTube. And by the way, transcripts of our shows are also going up. The idea is to make the show available in as many different forms for people as we can, as well as uh, keeping our quality up. So let's get back to the topic of numbers. And I really think that uh, numbers and mathematics are indispensable in any civilization where we have technology. We're going to need numbers and the ability to work with them. Now, there are different properties to different types of things, and different numbers can be used to represent them. As I was mentioning before the break, there are some things that we can number very clearly because they only come in units. For instance, if you look up and see birds, you know it's going to be a whole number of birds, like uh, two or five or seven. You're not going to see 2.6 birds flying around, or at least not for very long. So this is one of the properties of things that we can number that we recognize, wholeness. In other words, some things only come in discrete quantities. But some things aren't so simple. There are populations, not individual things. And sand or air or water would be good examples. Anything that comes as a fluid, a liquid or a gas, can be considered to be measured by volume or mass and not enumerated. You wouldn't say I have 49 trillion air molecules. You generally wouldn't anyway. Even biblically speaking, some things were done by the measure, a measure of grain, a measure of corn. And this is because basically there was an agreed-upon unit of measure and that is what you purchased. This sort of material isn't a thing so much as it is a population of tiny particles. So liquids, fluids of any sort, granular materials, things that come in broken chunks, all of these things are really populations, and we number them by their volume or their mass rather than their individual component parts. This sort of number requires fractions or decimals, and that's something that didn't come along until much later in human history. The addition of the value zero is a recent thing as well. Many people couldn't wrap their heads around the thought that, well, numbers can have a zero value. Zero itself is a quantity, none. And so for a very long time, zero was basically ignored. Another way of looking at it is to say that mathematical thinking of the type that we use and are very commonly familiar with today really was not very common only a couple of thousand years ago or so. The difference is pretty simple. Integers have discrete whole values, and you don't use portions of them. On the other hand, most things exist in a continuum. So we also have to reckon with a continuous value, just like the difference between an analog or digital light switch. With a digital switch, we have a discrete value on or off. With the analog value, we have a slider or a knob that we turn up to make it brighter or dimmer. And we don't have a complete on or off value mark on it anywhere except for the ends. In the middle, 
there's a continuous range of potential values. And this is the same as a distance, a temperature, a velocity, or any of those things. They're much more similar to measuring a bucket of sand versus five or six cannonballs. Once we get past the values of numbers themselves, we also have to face the fact that mathematics, the rules of manipulating numbers, is another whole world in its own right. Most interesting is that mathematics itself actually is a language of a sort. And if we were to meet intelligent aliens in the universe, they would use the same sort of mathematics and we could easily communicate with them through mathematics. An excellent example of this was present in Carl Sagan's fictional work, Contact. In the story, a digital message is received and people begin to decode it and figure out what it says. It turns out to be actually very simple. There are certain numbers that exist in nature only in very specific instances, such as the mass of the electron versus the mass of the proton. Values such as the fine structure constant or the speed of light or prime numbers will be obvious candidates for recognition as well. What's most interesting about it is, by using the rules of mathematics and a little bit of logic, we're able to construct a grammar that anyone can figure out by starting with a few pages of simple examples, a primer if you will. From this point we can go on to develop such concepts as complex mathematical operations, physical constants, the structure of matter, and other otherwise indecipherable things. If you're not certain that's true, then look at a television image or the picture on the screen of your computer. There really isn't color or shape or volume or distance or noise or any of that stuff wrapped up in a video. It's all numbers. We found a very clever encoding scheme that allows us to capture and represent information of literally any kind using nothing but numbers. The clever part is figuring out a trick so that we all agree on the rules on how to encode and decode the information. And this is where a lot of mathematics steps in. Now people who have a tough time thinking about mathematics are probably not going to become the sort of person who works on this image data or audio data, compressed, stored, transmitted, or anything of the sort. It requires quite a bit of understanding of mathematics in order to do this at a basic level. One of the things happening in our society today is this. Machinery is so capable of doing math rapidly and accurately that people are beginning to lose the skill. They're using this mechanical or electronic crutch to do it for them instead. We really stand at a point where it's possible that people, by and large, will fall back into the same mental state they existed in 10,000 years ago, unable to truly conceive of numbers properly and the rules that allow us to manipulate them. It's just like the old adage, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Well, look at what's happening with handwriting today. Cursive used to be the default standard in the USA, and most schools don't even teach it anymore. There are people growing up who've never used cursive writing and can't read it. What happens with a similar sort of situation involving mathematical skills? If people don't use mathematics, relying instead on calculators and computers, will the part of their brain that we've developed so carefully over the last few centuries begin to atrophy? Or is this a skill that can be taught to anyone with a little patience? Now some people feel that it isn't so necessary to have mathematical skills in abundance these days. Instead, they feel that it's just as well to let the machine do it under the hood and we never need to look inside and see what's happening. Nevertheless, our ability to think critically often depends on math and logic. It's true that most people never use calculus or even algebra in their day-to-day -day lives, but we all do use the skill of counting and reckoning values and adding and subtracting a few numbers. 
And it isn't too unusual to have to be able to do a little multiplication or division if you handle stock or are moving quantities of materials around, even building, such as moving cinder block around from point A to point B. When you have enough cinder block to build a wall, you can begin your construction. Otherwise, your mortar or your concrete will set up. How do you know you have enough? You have to be able to do a little basic math. This is where another valuable skill, estimation, steps in. Mathematical thinking isn't quite like linguistic thinking or anything else, and it certainly isn't like sensory thinking, where we detect what our senses tell us and construct a picture in our minds. To the contrary, mathematical thinking is more akin to logic. It's a very strict discipline, and it requires the ability to have very clear ideas of what you're trying to achieve. Computer programmers tend to be fairly good at math, and easily convert numbers from one base to another in their heads quite often. After all, it wouldn't make sense for you to have to keep picking up a notepad or a computer or a calculator and constantly calculate the values. With a little practice, the ability to shift things from decimal to hexadecimal, base 10 to base 16, becomes almost innate. And the fact is, computing is numeric. It really is. There is no other way of describing it very easily. Language is sloppy, and it doesn't allow us to say things as clearly, many times, as a simple equation. As the great physicist Lord Kelvin once said, and I'll paraphrase him here, if you can't say something about it in numbers, it's a very poor sort of knowledge that you have about it. But then again, there's another side to this as well. If we stop thinking about numbers per se and look at mathematics itself, we realize that our ability to appreciate mathematics has brought us many messages truly from nature. For instance, if you look at the center of a sunflower plant, you'll see a growing spiral from the center outward, and if you look at the seashell, its structure contains exactly the same sort of spiral. All of these are based on a very simple thing called the golden ratio. This number appears again and again in nature, just as the number pi is associated with the circle and appears many times in different places and contexts in nature as well. There are other numbers that appear many times in nature, and they seem to be truly ubiquitous. E, the base of the natural logarithms, for example, and of course the golden ratio and pi, the ratio of the diameter to the circumference of a circle. What is truly fascinating about these numbers is not only that they occur everywhere, but that it appears that mathematics being what it is, these numbers will be the same in nearly any universe. Quantum mechanics also reveals a number of values that appear to be connected with it very intimately. Many of them, however, are not numbers so much as they are functions. Remember a little earlier I said that numbers are more than simply something to count things by. In many cases, they can act as functions. This is exactly where we end up when we start looking at quantum mechanics. Many of the values are actually the results of functions or can act as functions. An easy example would be to take a number line, pick a point on it, and then add a number to it. What are you actually doing? What you're doing is you're instructing yourself to move right that far on the number line. In other words, the number becomes a function or transformation of your location on the line. When we take this into three-dimensional space, we can see that computer graphics involves a number of translations of points, rotations of things, and scalings of things. All of these are mathematical functions, each of which can be represented by a number. So if you approach something, it appears larger. In fact, it's scaled by your distance. If you change your angle, then the viewpoint changes. This is a function of trigonometry as well. 
So everything has a function, and numbers are at the heart of it all. But the mathematics to do it seems to be wired into our brains. How is that? As it happens, neurons, being learning machines, have the ability to estimate. And when thousands or millions of neurons get together and estimate in parallel, they seem to do an amazing and remarkable thing. They sharpen up the results by relying on the information and opinions of the other neurons and reach a nice smooth consensus which is often quite close to the true answer. Think about how easily you calculate the differential and the integral necessary to see where a pitched baseball is going to land, to move your hands to intercept it, and to make the catch successfully. This isn't something that you had to study in school. It's something that comes to you very innately. It turns out that the cerebellum, the lower, smaller portion of our brain, is exceptionally good at using this sort of mathematics. It's modeling the kinetics, movement, mass, velocity, impact, and it's doing so on the fly without you ever considering a single digit. What may surprise people even more is that many animals have a very good innate sense of quantity and are actually able to do some simple calculations. More to the point, our ability to deal with numbers and think in mathematics as human beings actually comes from things learned by previous generations of animals. Amazing when you think about it. We'll get into some of that and complex thinking about mathematics very shortly after the break. Eliza, please introduce the break. I'm Eliza. This is Talk Universe, and we will return after the break. There are more interesting things to hear in a few minutes. That's right, and I want you to be here to hear it. We'll also look at how you can sharpen your mathematical skills and learn a few interesting tricks along the way. I think this is something that just about everybody could appreciate. Why not? We can all use a little help sometimes, and the batteries won't die either. I'm Sir Charles Schultz. This is Talk Universe. Please come back. Welcome back to Talk Universe. Um, I was talking about animals and mathematics and the nature of the world around us. And I think it's an interesting thought that our ability to reckon things didn't just come out of nowhere. But our ancestors had to have some ability with mathematics. And after all, even an animal can figure out how to catch something like a ball. Throw one to a dog and see how easily he calculates the path and catches it in his teeth. It means that he's doing the same sort of native mathematics that we do when we catch a ball. Many animals have the ability to judge movements, velocities, and trajectories without any schooling whatsoever. It's simply something that we pick up in the due course of our lives. That means that the ability to appreciate mathematics and perform those sorts of calculations are already wired into our brains somehow. It's only when we get to things like complicated ways of doing mathematics that we seem to lose it sometime. Calculus, trigonometry, negative roots, all of these things seem to come very hard to some people. And yet, if we were given proper examples to go by, many of us would learn mathematics very easily. Personally, I find mathematics fascinating, and I use it in a daily manner, but many people aren't in the sort of position in their lives where that happens. But let's go back one step and figure out how it is that many animals can do mathematics. And it's simple. It turns out that to be able to deal with the world effectively, we have to move around in it, and we have to work with things that happen in it. Our ability to predict the path of a ball when it's thrown, or a rock falling down a hill, 
that's pretty essential. We have to be able to avoid obstacles, to take advantage of situations, and to understand kinetics and movement. So our brains, our neurological systems, actually have all the pieces and parts necessary to appreciate mathematics and calculate those values very easily. But we don't assign numbers to those values in most cases. It's probably fair to say that the part that we fall down on isn't the actual mathematics, but translating it successfully into numbers, a representation that we can all agree on. Many people have a hard time reckoning angles, for instance. Well, that's not so hard when you start looking at the angles of a box. We understand that 90-degree angles are the rule for anything that's square or rectangular. We get a pretty good idea of what a 90-degree angle looks like. We also, if we've ever built cabinetry or furniture, begin to understand 45-degree angles, 22.5-degree angles, and the halves and fractions of those angles very easily. It just takes exposure and assigning those number values in our minds and becoming familiar with them. In many cases, we work quite adeptly with things without knowing the actual values of them. This is when people say they're not good at math or not good at numbers. It actually simply takes familiarity in a case such as this. Children who are exposed to geometry, who draw and sketch a lot and work with compasses and straight edges, become quite good at recognizing angles and assigning values to them. This is a skill that carries over into the rest of their lives. This is something that even an adult can practice, however. You see, the first hurdle to get over is a recognition of the fact that you actually are quite good at mathematics. You simply don't know it by that name. You think about it as dealing with the real world. And you don't assign numbers to those things. You simply go with the flow. But knowing that you're actually quite good at mathematics and then learning how to assign numeric values to your thinking, that's the step that you must take. It's a certain form of innumeracy, similar to illiteracy, that many adults face. The funny thing is, the more familiar you become with the numeric values, the more readily you begin to accept them and work with them. Eliza, what is the definition of innumeracy? Innumeracy is the inability to understand and work with number values effectively. Thank you for that. I appreciate your thoughts. Another interesting thing is, people who seem to be terrible at numbers often are quite good at calculating values for money. I found this to be an effective tool for teaching children about values. You see, every child can add four quarters and get a dollar. When you assign the values to them, a quarter is 25 cents, and four times 25 is a hundred. Because it has an innate meaning or value to them as money, Suddenly it translates very easily from numbers to monetary values, and they learn about it much more readily. Sometimes all you have to do is find something that will draw your imagination, turn it into a game. Think about memorizing a phone number. Normally, people will do it by breaking into three distinct chunks. The area code, which is pretty easy to remember assigning it to, let's say, a city or an area. Then the first three digits, maybe you'll think of something that it reminds you of, and then the last four digits. Instead of having to remember a 10-digit number, you're breaking it down into a 3-digit, a 3-digit, and a 4-digit, and each of them might have a specific significance. Sometimes you look for a pattern or a mnemonic, a memory device that allows you to recognize it more easily. Looking for patterns is also an easy way to learn more about numbers and become more familiar with them, and to improve your memory. But just like any muscle, memory needs to be exercised, and the more you do it, the more easily you'll remember things. 
The long and the short of it, however, is, in order to become good at mathematics, you have to have a reason. Most people don't have a reason to become good at mathematics. They don't see anything interesting in it. Other people find patterns and fascination in numbers and their predictability, and they swim through them just as easily as a fish through the water. It's fascinating to see people known as savants who can crunch numbers in their heads instantly or calculate dates on the calendar, and you wonder what's going on in their minds. In many cases, they've simply thought about this a long time and put the pieces together. They have a sense of concentration and purpose and focus that most people can never even marshal. One way to think about this is this. Your brain is mathematical in nature, just as everything in the universe is. The operating rules inside your head are based on mathematics, and all you really need to do is become familiar with them and put the proper labels on them. But if all of this fails and you never really develop a facility for math, there's something you should think about. Just as recently as four or 5,000 years ago, when people didn't really have a formal system of written numbers, in many cases, people who were dealing with tax collection were in a real dilemma. They would look at the livestock the farmers had, such as sheep, cows, pigs, and they would try to find a way of reckoning how to collect their tax on it. They knew how many sheep to take out of a field of sheep, one out of eight or nine, for instance, as a tax. But how did you know how many there were if you couldn't write numbers down? They came upon an ingenious solution. They would literally make tiny clay figures representing sheep, and then they would walk the sheep through a passageway and count each one by putting a clay figure in a pot. At the end of the day, the number of figures matched the number of sheep. The pot would be crimped shut, sealed with king's seal, and fired. In a year, when the next tax season came around, they'd break open the pot and they'd pull out the tokens. As each sheep was marched by, a token would be counted off. At the end, you would have a certain remaining number of sheep, and that was how many you had raised during the farming year. This is how they kept track of things for tax purposes. Small clay vessels fired with a number of tokens inside. Now, we know that evolutionarily, the human race doesn't change overnight. In fact, it takes a very long time. What I'm trying to say is, the wiring of your brain and the wiring of their brains is probably pretty much identical. Nothing's really changed, except for what we learn. Now, it's true some people have more or less facility for math or for art or for engineering or languages, and that's a given. Nevertheless, you can learn the skills. It simply requires an impetus, a desire to do so, and the time that you invest in it. Primary skill, repetition. Memory is the most important thing. You must become familiar with numbers so that you automatically think of them and associate them. Then you look at the rules for handling them. Repetition, repetition. Try to remember groups of numbers that you see at random, and then call them back to memory later. The more you do this, the more able you'll be to calculate in your head. Those lightning calculators I spoke of earlier, the people who seem to be able to crunch numbers instantly, they have prodigious memories, and memory is improved with usage. People learn multiplication in school. You remember your times tables. It doesn't take a lot of practice to extend that and become very good at it. But since we rarely do it in the course of the day, these skills begin to fade away. Practice, that's your friend. You've often heard the stories that Albert Einstein was terrible at mathematics. This is untrue. He was actually quite good at it. What he didn't understand was higher math methods. He did hire a teacher, 
to show him how to handle the mathematics behind his theories, and then he became quite adept at it. So, think about it. If Einstein needed a math teacher, should it be any surprise that maybe some other people do too? So, let's see what book recommendation Eliza has on her slate. Oh, Eliza, what is her book recommendation this week? This week's book is The Language of Mathematics, Making the Invisible Visible. It was written by Keith J. Devlin. This book was published in March 2000 by Holt Paperbacks. I enjoyed this book immediately when I saw it. The Language of Mathematics. It has a little quote at the beginning that I like a lot. The great book of nature, said Galileo, can be read only by those who know the language in which it is written. And this language is mathematics. Now, that's an interesting quote and an interesting way of putting it. Mathematics is the language of the universe, and we are all parts of the universe. It seems strange that we might not understand something that we're a part of or is a part of us, but that's the fact in many cases. The language of mathematics explains clearly concepts like multiplication and division, things you didn't know about them, and even calculus and higher mathematics very easily. It may not lead you to a full understanding, but at least you'll understand what you're not getting. I can give you a good example. Some people might say, well, why did we come up with calculus if they don't understand what it's for? Well, I'll give you a great example of why. Imagine you have a swimming pool and it's emptying out, and you know that the water is coming out of the bottom of the pool. And you say, well, it's coming out at so many gallons per hour, and it should empty out in six hours. But that's not true, and here's the reason. As the pool empties, the water level drops. That means that the pressure goes down and the water flows more slowly. Calculus gives you a way of modeling this process so that you understand that the actual answer depends on a variable input, not a constant input. Calculus is a tool for figuring those things out. You'll discover that some of these processes are actually disarmingly simple. Differential analysis? That simply means finding what the difference is in each step of the path. So if you had 30 numbers in a row and you subtracted one from the one before, all the way down the line, all of the differences would show up as well. So you'd have 30 numbers, you'd have 29 differences. Number A subtracted from number B yields a difference. Number B subtracted from number C yields a difference. And when you're finished, if all of the numbers are increasing at a uniform rate, all of the values in the next row, the differences or differentials, will have the same or very close to the same value. Some people do get it intimately and very easily, though. The story goes that Leonard Euler, one of the most fantastic mathematicians of all time, as a child was in school and the teacher told him to add up the numbers from 1 to 100. He had an answer in a few seconds while the rest of the class was adding them all up. He said 5,050. The teacher was astounded and didn't know how he did it. And so when he asked, Euler said, I took the first number 1 and the last number 100 and added them together. That's 101. I realized that 2 and 99 was 101. 3 and 98 was 101. And I had to do that 50 times. 5,050. Now, as an exercise, I have an interesting puzzle that I found many years ago. The Collett's Conjecture, as it's technically called, or Snowflake Numbers, as it's known offhand. And it's a very simple puzzle, but one that is fascinating. It starts out like this. Pick any number, an integer, by the way, not a fraction. If the number is even, divide it by 2. If the number is odd, multiply it by 3 and add 1. 
the next number will be some result. The number will eventually reach 1, no matter which number you pick. It doesn't matter. Every number ever tried always ends up arriving back at 1. Sometimes it takes many thousands of steps, sometimes it only takes a few. This is the sort of puzzle that gets you thinking, and it's sort of addictive. If you want to learn more about math, and you want to know why people are fascinated, take on the Collett's conjecture and generate some snowflake numbers. You'll find it to be an amazing and addictive pursuit. On that note, Eliza, could you introduce the break? I am standing by at this time. I see. Could you do something for me? Tell me what you need. Please introduce the break. You are listening to Talk Universe. I'm Eliza, your co-host. We will be right back. Indeed we will. We have listener questions, interesting subjects, the Singularity Watch, and much more to talk about in the next segment. I'm your host, Sir Charles Schultz. Here's your chance to ask us a question about mathematics and thinking. We're back. Okay, Eliza, you're up. Talk Universe will continue now. Oh, there you go. So we've got some pretty good material here. Eliza, how many questions are in the queue? Two items are still left, Charles. So yes, we've got a lot of things to do still. Um, Singularity Watch, we've got a lot of items. I think you're going to find these pretty fascinating. Interesting stuff, ranging from computing to geology. And so for now... Let's get Eliza and uh, have her ask some questions. So, Eliza, could you read a listener question? Avery from Memphis asks, would math be the same for aliens? Or could they have a different kind of math? That's an interesting question. And actually, aliens, no matter how alien, would pretty much have the same sort of math that we have because... They would make the same discoveries of nature. They would make the same uh, decisions about how it works. They'd recognize quantities and fractions and decimals. They might have uh, different ways of thinking about it, but the mathematics fundamentally would be exactly the same as what we use. Now, the reason I can be so sure about this is because if we get messages from aliens, we know they have to have technology. And science and technology will only be developed in a way that is commensurate with physics. Math and physics are the same everywhere. So if you're getting a message from aliens, you know they've developed technology and they had to use mathematics to get there in all likelihood. And no matter what their early history might be like, I mean, think about Roman numerals and how goofy they were, they still will arrive at a number system that works. So mathematics will be the same for aliens. Thank you for that question, Avery. Read the next listener question, please. Charlene from Pretoria wants to know if she can improve her ability to understand numbers. Math has always been a hard subject for her. Yes, indeed. Actually, uh, that's exactly what we were talking about to a degree. Um, Read about numbers. The book that I recommended is a good one. Get familiar with numbers. Memorize them. Just work with them and become familiar with them. Working with money, working with angles, things that you're already familiar with. And give it time. It takes practice. Yeah, we can't all have uh, Eliza's ability because we're not all computers just yet. Singularity is not quite here. But um, we do have some interesting singularity items. 
It's time for the Singularity Watch. I'm Eliza, and this is Singularity Watch on Talk Universe. Yes, it is. We have four articles tonight. Ah, four articles. That sounds great. So let's get started with that. Read a Singularity Watch article, please. Baby bird from time of dinosaurs found fossilized in amber. Ah. This article was published in news.nationalgeographic.com. It was written by Kristen Romy, June 7, 2017. Yes, a baby bird from the time of dinosaurs. Sounds pretty interesting. Oh, Eliza. Yes, Charles. What are we talking about? It seems that we were talking about a very ancient bird fossil that shows great detail. Indeed we are. This is one of the most amazing fossils ever found. Now, this particular fossil is uh, 99 million years old, and it is a young bird, small enough to be trapped in amber. It shows some interesting developments, um, teeth in its beak, uh, remarkably well-preserved um, feet and feathers. They found they've got over half of the bird in this piece of amber. It also showed that these young birds were very well developed and did not need the help of their parents from an early stage of their lives. They probably hatched with the ability to fly. Pretty amazing. The amber was found a few years ago and was bought and sold and passed around, uh, I believe initially in 2014. It's from a mine in Burma, or Myanmar as it's called now, um, it's one of the most remarkable finds ever. Now, many people may wonder, is there DNA in there? Well, possibly, but it's not very likely, because over long periods of time, genetic molecules tend to become randomized somewhat. There's often um, a lot of material that was DNA but the DNA breaks down and the amino acids switch from left to right-handed mirror form sometimes. It's called racemization. So it's unlikely there's anything in there they could clone. Please read the next Singularity Watch article, Eliza. 33 blood cancer patients have dramatic clinical remission with new T-cell therapy. This article was published in Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence News. It was written by Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence on June 7, 2017. So let's get this straight. We have 33 blood cancer patients who have dramatic clinical remissions with a new T-cell therapy. This is amazing. I think that this is uh, probably one of the best articles that I've seen in quite a while. Chinese doctors reported success with a new type of immunotherapy for multiple myeloma, which is a type of blood cancer. 33 out of 35 patients in the clinical trial had remission within two months. Basically, they used a type of T-cell uh, called chimeric antigen receptor T. And what they did in a phase one clinical trial is the patient's own T-cells were collected they were genetically reprogrammed in the lab and injected back into the patient. The reprogramming involved inserting an artificially designed gene into the T-cell genome, reprogramming the cell effectively, which reprograms the cell to find and destroy cancer cells throughout the body. In other words, they turn the cells into cancer killers. 
The study was presented Monday, uh, June 5th, 2017, at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the conference in Chicago. So, and that was uh, a week ago. There is a clinical trial planned in the U.S. The researchers plan to enroll a total of 100 patients in the continuing clinical trial in four hospitals in China, and in early 2018, they plan to launch a similar clinical trial in the United States. Looking ahead, we would also like to explore whether BCMA CAR T-cell therapy benefits patients who are newly diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So the study was funded by a legend biotech company. And it's amazing they're finding a way to destroy cancer, blood cancer, in the body. Read the next Singularity Watch article, please, Eliza. Researchers decipher how faces are encoded in the brain. This article was published in Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence News. It was written by Kurzweil Accelerating Intelligence on June 9, 2017. That sounds interesting. What are we talking about? I believe it was it is now possible to understand easily how brains store facial recognition data. Yes, it is. Now, this is an interesting article. A lot of times uh, we've seen people in the past sit down in front of a police sketch artist and describe a person's face so they could draw the picture. Well, they've done this um, in spades. In a paper published uh, June 1st in the journal Cell, researchers report that they've cracked the code for facial identity in the primate brain. What they found is an extremely simple code, said senior author Doris Tsao, a professor of biology and biological engineering at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, she says, and I quote, We can now reconstruct a face that a monkey is seeing by monitoring the electrical activity of only 205 neurons in the monkey's brain. One can imagine applications in forensics where one could reconstruct the face of a criminal by analyzing a witness's brain activity. Basically, they found six face patches, general areas in the primate and human brain that are responsible for identifying faces, all located in the inferior temporal cortex. They uh, found that these areas are packed with specific nerve cells that fire action potentials much more strongly when seeing faces than when seeing other objects. They call these neurons face cells. Basically, what it comes down to is a small number of neurons encode all the data to describe a face in the human brain or in a primate brain. They've located a way of doing it, and they show the, the monkey's faces, and then by analyzing the data that they record on the monkey's brains, they reconstruct the face on the computer. And it's, well, they're virtually indistinguishable. It's like a photograph. They're looking at potentially applications in the near term where they could look at your brain activity and spot a face. Amazing. We're looking at uh, technology that could analyze your brain activity and directly reproduce the face of anybody that you've seen. Read the next Singularity Watch article, please. Alphabet is selling its terrifying robots to SoftBank. Ooh. This article was published in Quartz Media at QZ.com. It was written by Mike Murphy, June 8, 2017. Well, selling terrifying robots. This is a fascinating story because it shows that uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet, has agreed to sell two 
of its um, robotic subsidiaries, Boston Dynamics and Shaft, to Japanese telecom company SoftBank. Now, they'd been looking for buyers for the MIT spinoff Boston Dynamics for at least a year, and I think that uh, a lot of people are familiar with Boston Dynamics, Big Dog and Pet Man and the other robots that uh, inspire people to think of the Terminators. Um, these have been sold to a Japanese company. But the Japanese company is in this to make some money. They've already come up with a number of products um, that have been sold all over the place um, that are very friendly household sorts of robots. So maybe we're not looking at them building Terminators, but actually household assistance, cleaning machines, um, devices that can do something beneficial that people really want. Let's hope that is the case. And that is the end of our Singularity Watch for this week. So we've gone from um, fossilized birds, 99 million years old, to blood cancer cures, to scary robots being sold to a Japanese company, and uh, facial recognition in the brain. It's astounding how quickly our technology is growing and what we're doing with it. I don't know what it will lead to, and I don't think anybody can predict. But it's um, there's no question that the things that are happening today are almost unimaginable in the context of uh, 20 or 30 years ago. As for um, getting better at mathematics and understanding numbers, I would say within the next 5 to 10 years, we'll probably see clinical trials of something that can be injected into your brain that will give you the ability to calculate any number in your head pretty quickly. We're getting very close to that sort of thing. Uh, Elon Musk's neural lace concept that plugs circuitry directly into your brain is coming along. There's a lot of concern about people hacking your memories, your preferences, and your feelings. Basically, you know, um, you could turn somebody into a robot. You could literally force them to think or believe or do anything with that sort of technology. Um, I know that we did report on four new basic human rights that prevent that sort of thing from happening, but of course we know your rights are, rights are violated all the time. I don't know uh, if the future is scary good or scary bad. Uh, you know, it's interesting, though. We've seen so many developments in the last 20 years. It is accelerating, and we really don't know where it's going. I think we need to focus on the positive aspects of what we've seen here while being wary about the potential for disaster. Um, I know that I always end the show on a very positive note one way or another. The world is getting to be a fascinating and interesting place, very dynamic, very dangerous, but with a lot of promise. We need to check each other. We need to make sure that we're working in the proper direction, that we're heading for a cleaner, better world, and not a future based on simple profits and bottom lines. The SoftBank company in Japan, with all those robot purchases, is actually working toward making security robots, home assistants, and that sort of thing. So maybe we'll see something beneficial and positive come out of that. I'm certainly looking forward to that. So, you know, what I always say, we have everything we need to make everything we will ever need and make you the world a better or more beautiful place for having lived in it. So, it's time to end the show. Thank you for listening to Talk Universe. We hope that you have enjoyed the show. 
Please listen again next week. Absolutely. We did have a couple of good listener questions. Let's get more of that. So, from our remote location in the Santa Monica Mountains, this has been Talk Universe. I am your host, Charles Schultz. Please come back and listen next week. Thank you. <laughs>